Welcome to the Oxford Psychiatry podcast series. You're here with Charlotte Allen and Daniel Morn, and today we're going to be talking about anxiety disorders. Daniel, can you start off by telling me what the main anxiety disorders are? Thank you, Charlotte. I'm glad you said main, as there are actually many different types of anxiety disorders. The main ones include the phobias, panic disorder, generalised anxiety disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder. There are also reactions to stress or trauma, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, acute stress reactions and adjustment disorders. Thank you for that. It sounds like there are a huge number of different types of anxiety disorders. Let's take them one by one, and perhaps you could start by telling me about the phobias. Right. The phobias all have in common three symptoms. Anxiety restricted to the phobia. Significant autonomic symptoms. By that I mean things like uh, increased breathing, changes in um, heart rate, sweating and other symptoms like that. And the last one is avoidance. Okay, so anxiety, autonomic symptoms and avoidance. How, how do those present in agoraphobia? Well, agoraphobia is an interesting one. Lots of people think it's uh, fear of open spaces, but it's actually fear of the marketplace. So agoraphobia is actually a fairly well-defined cluster of phobias embracing fears of leaving the home, entering shops, crowds or public places. Often, actually, the phobia is, is most severe in uh, public transport. Panic attacks are a frequent feature of episodes, and avoidance of the phobic situation is, is prominent. Some people with agoraphobia experience little anxiety, actually, because they are able to avoid their phobic situations really well in the way that they manage their days. How is agoraphobia different to social phobia? Well, social phobia is more a fear of scrutiny by other people, and that leads to avoidance of social situations. Um, more pervasive social phobias are associated with low self-esteem and fear of criticism. So that's really quite different from fear of particular places that are maybe highly populated by people. It's about being up the front and being scrutinised by others, which is the key here. The person might present by complaining about blushing or a tremor or feeling sick or an urgency to urinate. And the patient is sometimes convinced that one of the secondary manifestations of these anxiety, which I mentioned, is actually the primary problem. So they think actually that the nausea is the main problem. And again, symptoms might progress to panic attacks like they do in agoraphobia. And then how about specific phobias? Well, specific phobias are maybe the ones that we're more used to hearing about in, in our friends or family and uh, constitute things like blood phobias or pho phobias about, um, well, any, anything really from a, an animal to um, a medical situation. And... These phobias tend to arise in childhood and continue into adulthood. And again, what we're looking for here is uh, anxiety that is restricted to being around the stimulus, the autonomic symptoms and the avoidance. Thanks. Next, if we move on to panic disorder, can you tell me what panic disorder is? 
Yes, well, I've mentioned that you can get panic and agoraphobia, but panic disorder is slightly different and, and can be a diagnosis in itself. With panic disorder, the essential feature is recurrent attacks of severe anxiety, which are not restricted to any particular situation or set of circumstances, and therefore quite unlike specific phobias, where the anxiety is very much related to a particular situation. The dominant symptoms are the autonomic symptoms. We probably all have felt panic at different times in our life and we probably could describe what it feels like, but we make a list of autonomic symptoms that include heart palpitations, chest pain, choking sensations, dizziness, feelings of unreality can sometimes be there as well, which we call depersonalization or derealization. This is where the person sometimes feels as though either the situation has become unreal or, or suddenly they don't feel part of the situation. And then following on from that, so you've got this real crescendo of autonomic symptoms and this can lead into a fear of dying, losing control, fainting or, or going mad. And actually that's what can lead into uh, avoidance of any situation in which the panic attack happened. A classic story of this might be a panic attack happening just at random in a supermarket leading to a fear of supermarkets or an avoidance of supermarkets. I think maybe if we just go over that a little bit more because it's quite easy to get confused between the, that panic disorder and um, agoraphobia for example or, or a specific phobia. So with panic disorder there are panic attacks which come out of the blue and then there's a secondary worry about having the panic attack and that leads to the, to the phobia and the avoidance behaviour. Is that right? Or? That's right. So actually panic attacks can arise independent of any circumstance. But there can be the fact that panic disorder can lead to a specific type of phobia or an agoraphobia. And okay. that can be the case where panic disorder can lead into agoraphobia at times. Okay. So we've talked about different parts of life that might be affected by anxiety, specific parts of life. What about generalised anxiety disorder? How does that present and how does that affect people? Generalised anxiety disorder is quite distinct from panic disorder. Panic disorder, the person generally feels okay and then has sudden onsets of severe anxiety, and which is only for a circumscribed period of time. Whereas generalised anxiety disorder is where the anxiety, well, it does exactly what it says on the tin, actually. It's generalised <clears throat> and persistent, but not restricted to any particular environmental circumstance. And the, the word we use here, or the, the term we use, is free-floating anxiety. It doesn't matter where the person is or what the person's doing. They remain having a, a significant degree of anxiety. And again, autonomic symptoms are there, um, although avoidance doesn't tend to be there because it's not restricted to any particular circumstance. What about obsessive compulsive disorder? Because I think this is slightly different to some of the other anxiety disorders that you've talked about. Yes, obsessive compulsive disorder is something which is actually often misunderstood because it has been portrayed in many Hollywood films and for that reason people might have a, a misperception of, of what it is. The essential feature is recurrent obsessional thoughts 
and or compulsive acts. Now, obsessional thoughts are ideas or images that enter the person's mind repeatedly. And the person finds these thoughts distressing and tries unsuccessfully to resist having the thoughts. They keep happening. They are, these thoughts are recognised as the person's own thoughts, even though they are involuntary and the person finds them unpleasant. And the term we use for that is egodystonic. So okay. it's egosyntonic might be a thought that you're completely happy with and you feel agrees with you. Egodystonic is something which you, you don't agree with and it might not be um, in agreement with your general principles, for instance, hitting someone. Okay. Something like that. So something which is quite distressing to the person, which they wouldn't usually consider doing and just comes into their mind and is, is then very worrying for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And you can see that obsessional thoughts are quite well-defined and characterised types of thought. They're repetitive, they're unpleasant, you recognise them as your own thoughts, and they're egodystonic. Okay. Now, if that's an obsession, what is, what is a compulsion? Well, the obsessions can quite often lead to quite a significant amount of anxiety in the person, and compulsive acts are carried out to try and reduce that level of anxiety brought about by the obsession. So compulsive acts are repetitive stereotype behaviours that are not inherently enjoyable and they don't result in the completion of a, of a task and they're not useful. Okay. So as I said their function is to prevent some uh, reduction in anxiety and that's often due to the patient having an obsessive thought for instance or an obsessional thought that they might get infected and, and die, and the compulsion can therefore uh, be made to try and reduce the likelihood of that happening, for instance, washing the, their hands. Okay. So it's carried out to um, try and reduce the, ch the chance of this thing happening, and it's, it's often washing hands, it can be symmetry, it can be checking, checking the locks, for instance, if they have a thought that they might get burgled, they might check the locks, mm -hmm. or they might check plug sockets, or gas uh, cookers. So the compulsions are carried out to reduce the anxiety. What can happen, though, with people with OCD, is that the compulsive, compulsive acts can go on for so long that they become ritualised, and the person then becomes unaware of why they check all the plug sockets every hour, for instance, because in a sense their obsessional thought has moved on maybe to a different area, but they've stayed ritualised in their behaviour. So it almost becomes then an ingrained pattern of behaviour. That's right. Which I imagine could have quite profound consequences for somebody's day-to-day -day life if they're having to repeat these compulsions so frequently. That's right. Sometimes it can take somebody with um, suffering with OCD an hour, two hours to actually leave the house mm -hmm. because of these ritualised behaviours and compulsions. Okay. And does stress make, the, make these things worse? Or, I mean, do these patterns of behaviour stay fixed for a long time or, or do they change with time? Well, if we're moving on to prognosis and thinking about that, then actually this varies greatly between the different disorders and... Each individual 
within each disorder can vary quite significantly. And there's actually limited data as to what are the predictors of outcome for anxiety disorders. The general rule is that the future course of the illness is best predicted by the past course. And although it seems like a bit of a get-out clause, um, it must be said that anxiety disorders do have high rates of comorbidity with depression and alcohol and drug abuse. And a lot of the increased morbidity and mortality associated with anxiety disorders may be related to this high rate of comorbidity. It must be said, in response to your question though, Charlotte, disorders such as OCD and generalised anxiety disorders are both chronic illnesses and symptoms can wax and wane during the patient's life. Post-traumatic stress disorder, on the other hand, which maybe we'll go on to talk about, generally tends to improve, although saying this, more than one third of those with PTSD never fully recover. So we can see there's quite a range and it's quite difficult really without looking at a patient, a particular patient, to determine what a, a prognosis might be. Thanks, that's helpful to know a little bit more about prognosis. You mentioned that stress can make anxiety disorders worse. I just wondered whether stress in itself can precipitate anxiety disorders, and if so, how might, what might that look like in terms of clinical presentations? Yes, well, getting back to talking about the different types of anxiety disorders, there are a group of disorders that are a result of stress or stressful events. The... I guess the, maybe the easiest way to categorise these is according to the onset and the duration. Acute stress reaction is a very transient disorder that develops in a, an individual without any other apparent mental disorder in response to an exceptional physical or mental stress and it usually subsides within hours or days. Okay, Symptoms can include anything really but often disorientation, confusion, agitation or overactivity alongside symptoms of anxiety uh, predominate. It's important to realise that symptoms often appear within minutes of the st stressful event and will usually disappear within about two to three days of the event, but often hours. Okay, and how about adjustment disorders? Because they're also in response to stress, I think, but the time course is a little bit different. That's right. Adjustment disorders are sort of the next time period on and usually start within a month and don't last longer than six months. They arise actually following only, often only minor changes to people's lives, such as a change of job or a moving house as opposed to an acute stress reaction, which is usually something which is very severe, a severe event or a significant event, or post-traumatic stress disorder. So adjustment disorders uh, include symptoms such as some emotional disturbance, such as anxiety or interference with social functioning or disturbance in sleep or, or any, any sort of change to a person's life that doesn't meet the criteria for a depressive episode or another anxiety disorder and that is seen to arise specifically out of the change in life circumstances. Would it be fair to say that the symptoms of adjustment disorder are less severe than generalised anxiety disorder, for example? Yes, 
That's right, and we'd need to make sure that they didn't meet the criteria for generalised anxiety disorder before you made the diagnosis of adjustment disorder. Okay. Also, some people get long-term problems after there's been a very stressful event, and that can manifest as post-traumatic stress disorder. Could you say a little bit more about how that can present and what the key symptoms are? Yes, post-traumatic stress disorder has a similar sort of time of onset to adjustment disorders between one and six months usually Uh, and so it's a delayed or protracted response to a a very stressful event which is characterized as exceptionally threatening or catastrophic in nature perhaps something like a very bad car accident or the tsunami for instance there are lots of people suffering with PTSD who experience that so the typical features are actually a triad of symptoms which include re-experiencing phenomena, avoidance and a sense of autonomic or state sorry of autonomic hyperarousal. So re-experiencing phenomena are things like flashbacks or dreams or nightmares and avoidance is specifically to do with activities that remind them of the event. For instance if it's a car accident who might be getting into a car again if it's to do with a mugging, they might not want to go back to the place where they were mugged. And the an autonomic hyperarousal is, or, or sometimes called hypervigilance, is, is out of a state of always being alert. So sleep can be difficult because of that. They also it can be very easy to startle because they're very alert and aroused. Um, anxiety and depression are also commonly associated. Uh, with PTSD and suicidal ideation is not uncommon. You've talked about a range of anxiety disorders now, and along the way you've mentioned a few things that can trigger anxiety disorders, such as stressful events. I just wondered, as a group, are there any etiological factors which seem to precipitate these types of illnesses? Good question. Although there is thought to be some degree of genetic contribution, anxiety disorders are mostly thought to be of psychological origin. There remains debate about this. Uh, But there have been many theories, um, including a theory from Freud, who suggested that panic attacks were due to repressed sexuality. Well, is that something that's commonly thought of at the moment, or is that more a historical fact? There's more historical fact, actually, and uh, according to more recent theories, uh, well, we've actually got quite a good understanding of of the etiology of anxiety disorders. For instance, classical behavioural psychology suggests that all irrational anxiety is a result of conditioning processes, such as classical conditioning. You might remember Pavlov's dogs. Yes. Here, direct or indirect conditioning is connected to the onset of the phobia or anxiety disorder. So you're talking about learnt patterns of behaviour? That's right. So, for instance, um, the person might uh, associate, I don't know, spiders with a very awful situation and therefore the spiders... Uh, are then associated with the difficult emotions that actually were brought about by the awful situation, not the spider in the first place. Mm-hmm. But there have been critics to these simplistic behavioural theories uh, that have actually stressed more the cognitive or thought-based mechanisms. Um, 
Aaron Beck is well known for identifying specific cognitions or thoughts with themes of personal danger such as death, disease or social rejection, which are common amongst people with anxiety disorders. And are there any other theories that might help us to understand why these disorders come about? Well, yeah, uh, yes, Salkovskis uh, took this sort of, this sort of uh, cognitive behavioural model a bit further and created the psychophysiological model for anxiety. According to this model, anxiety or panic can arise as the result of a combination of physiological anxiety symptoms or autonomic symptoms, which we've talked about, of palpitations and uh, increased breathing, sweating, etc. And the individual's or the patient's interpretation of these symptoms as catastrophic. Therefore, this leads on then to a vicious circle and a crescendo of anxiety. So they misinterpret the palpitations as potentially being a heart attack, which makes them more anxious, which worsens the palpitations, and then worsens the anxiety. And this cycle can be very rapid in panic disorder, for instance, or less rapid in something like generalised anxiety disorder. You've mentioned several times about the autonomic effects of anxiety, and I guess that makes me wonder about any sort of biological predisposition and whether there are any stress hormones um, that might be making people more likely to get these diseases. Well, that's right. Actually, anxiety does serve a purpose when we think about um, being anxious. There are um, lots of potential situations that are that helpful for us to be that. So it's a, it's a normal biological process that potentially has got out of hand. Mm-hmm. There is evidence that um, there are alterations in stress hormones and catecholamines noted. And there have also been neuro- neurobiochemical clues from the pharmacological treatment of anxiety. What I mean by that is that the serotonergic system is particularly important because we know that the medications that treat anxiety disorders affect the serotonin system. They're selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So somehow serotonin plays a very important part in the origin of anxiety disorders. Clomipramine is the most potent tricyclic and we know that that is particularly efficacious in obsessive-compulsive disorder. It sounds like there are many different etiological factors to consider then. Do you think you could just summarise them for me? Yes. Uh, A potential pathogenesis of an anxiety disorder in a given person might be that they have a genetic vulnerability which might then lead to reduced regulation of their neurochemistry, possibly affecting serotonergic functions. Following this, environmental factors may then trigger an initial episode and after this, cognitive and conditioning mechanisms might interact to perpetuate this pathological anxiety state. And this model of multiple etiological factors explains the success of the different types of treatment that we can use. Moving on to epidemiology, can you say how common these disorders are? Well, point prevalence rates vary between the different anxiety disorders, and rates also vary dramatically between different studies as well, which can make it difficult for us to actually come to a coherent decision 
about specific prevalence or incidence rates for each condition. The epidemiologic catchment area study from the United States is one that's often cited and this this uh, study found prevalence for any anxiety disorder to be 12.5% but then they split up according to the different diagnosis and found that uh, the prevalence for simple phobia was 8%, agoraphobia was 6%, social phobia 2%, generalised anxiety disorder 4%, panic disorder 1%, obsessive compulsive disorder 2%, and post-traumatic stress disorder 2%. So that's a bit of a list, but you could see that actually uh, simple phobia and agoraphobia are sort of at the top end of the prevalence rates and OCD, PTSD and panic at the lower end of the prevalence rates and that's fairly consistent actually between the studies. It sounds like as a group though these are very common illnesses um, that doctors might see quite frequently. Yes they are prevalent conditions and importantly a lot of these are managed at a primary care level and often when they are uh, only when they're severe and the presentation is complex, do they progress to a, a secondary care level of, uh, in mental health services? We've already talked a bit about prognosis, so I think we, if we move on now to management. And I guess in, in this um, podcast, we're not going to talk about individual management of every condition, but more to think about the general principles of anxiety disorder management. Can you say anything about how you'd approach management of this group of conditions? Yes, well, I mean, usually we'd think about the biopsychosocial model of management, but with anxiety disorders, actually the first line usually is, is a psychological approach. And in essence, cognitive behavioural therapy is the, the main psychological approach to managing anxiety disorders. And there's actually a variety of different... CBT or cognitive behavioural therapy approaches or techniques that are used for the different conditions. For instance, there's trauma-focused CBT for post-traumatic stress disorder or exposure response prevention for obsessive compulsive disorder. And the reason that there is a variety of approaches is, is basically based upon the different theories of why these disorders have developed. So, for instance, exposure response prevention tries to um, help the patient unlearn these conditioned responses to their anxiety. And that is, some, say, an OCD, for example. So, is this right that um, you would just stop the compulsive acts, and by learning to stop those acts, that would help some of the um, obsessive symptoms? That's right. Yeah. So, we use... Ge generic cognitive behavioural principles and adapt them for each different model. Um, so, that, so that's the first line. And the second line, we'll move on to uh, 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 pharmacological approaches. And I guess there are a number of different uh, pharmacological approaches, the first of which is uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, which are effective against most anxiety disorders. For severe OCD, you can think about using clomipramine, which is a tricyclic which I've mentioned, 
or potentially uh, an antipsychotic in third line for severe cases. There are quite a number of other pharmacological strategies which are all second or third line. Can you say a little bit more about some of those? Well, yeah. Uh, one of them is uh, busperone, which is a 5-HT1A partial agonist, which might be gobbledygook for some people, but actually quite an important um, receptor when thinking about the uh, mediation of anxiety neurologically. Uh, busperone is used in the treatment of generalised anxiety disorder. It's not used for treating acute anxiety, though, as the anxiolytic effect can take up to two weeks to develop. And what about benzodiazepines? Because you haven't mentioned those yet. Um, and I just wonder whether they have a role in the treatment of anxiety disorder. Yes, benzodiazepines have a controversial uh, role, actually, in anxiety disorders, mainly due to their potential for producing dependence. They are highly effective in reducing acute anxiety. Unfortunately, due to tolerance, their efficacy reduces significantly within two to three weeks of using them. So whilst I think there's a lot of fear about their use, potentially rightly so, uh, they are highly effective in, in acute uh, high anxiety states. We just need to be aware of their capacity for producing dependence and the fact that if you, you're using them for two to three weeks, you are going to be needing to use increased doses. The patient will come back to you and potentially ask for more and you need to be aware of that. Are there any other medications that could be used second or third line? Yes. Uh, uh, pregabalin is an anticonvulsant drug used for neuropathic pain and as an adjunct therapy for seizures, but it has a licence for generalised anxiety disorder. Propranolol is a beta blocker, which uh, you might have heard of before for, for use as an antihypertensive. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not cardiac-specific, and for that reason, actually, it's very good at reducing these autonomic symptoms. So whilst it might not help in the sort of the mind state of anxiety, it reduces all the bodily reactions to anxiety. And for instance, snooker players can use it as a performance-enhancing drug, so it reduces tremor and reduce the heart rate. You mentioned earlier that um, drug misuse, alcohol misuse, can be common in anxiety disorders. So do you need to consider those aspects when treating somebody? Yes, uh, you're right to mention that, that because substance misuse, uh, such, such as alcohol or recreational drug use, are more common in those with anxiety disorders. And it's, it's absolutely essential that we re tackle these as actually um, uh, the sort of first thing we do when we, we manage a patient because um, these can lead into the vicious cycle of um, increasing anxiety and these learnt mechanisms that we've learned, talked about of, of how to reduce anxiety states, these can just perpetuate the anxiety disorder. Interestingly as well though, and we mustn't forget, although we all use this drug, potentially, is caffeine. Uh, caffeine uh, can be very um, 
important to uh, reduce in people with anxiety disorders and actually looking at their caffeine intake, cans of coke, tea, coffee and just cutting that out of, of day to day use can be very helpful in their management. Finally, are there any aspects of social support that, to help in management? Yes, uh, structuring day activities, providing appropriate support groups alongside employment support is very important. I think you do need to think about the risk that the patient presents and of course whether they need to be in a hospital or not, but again most anxiety disorders are managed in the community so uh, providing a good social support for people and encourage, particularly somebody with agoraphobia might need a friend or a member of their family to help them in the early stages of treatment to get them out. And for instance, people with OCD might need just support and encouragement. So actually a social network is really important. And I guess what we'd be seeing them do is helping them regain their independence and functionality. Thank you very much. That was a great introduction to diagnosis and management of anxiety disorders. If listeners want any further information about these conditions, can you suggest any extra resources? Well, yes, Charlotte, well, as, as always, we refer back to the Oxford Textbook of Psychiatry, which is an, an excellent resource uh, for understanding anxiety disorders with more depth and looking into the management of these conditions. Otherwise, the Royal College of Psychiatry website has some interesting and helpful uh, information leaflets. Lovely. Thank you very much. Goodbye.